0: welcome back to the cycling with watts podcast this is episode number six i'm your host jared watts and here on the cycling with watts podcast we talk about everything that has to do with cycling such as pro news tech news, training tips, maintenance tips, and anything else that I want to talk about related to biking, because this is a podcast dedicated to get you out on the bike more, get that butt in the saddle, and hopefully inspiring you to uh, to turn those pedals. So today we got a uh, full episode to dive into, talking mainly in the pro news about the Vualta, because that is going on right now, and then heading over to the tech corner for a couple new bikes we're gonna go over a little bit of maintenance on what I do pre-ride every single time before I go out for a ride and then get into some controversial topics in training coming up with uh, cycling with headphones do you do it do you not do it do you hate it do you love it we'll get into it so let's roll that sting music and get into that pro news <laughs> So the Volta is going on right now. I'm recording this on Monday night, releasing it on Tuesday. And we have been through three stages of the Volta, hitting a time trial, hitting what uh, the Volta website said was a flat stage for stage two, and then a little bit of, uh, well, kind of another flat stage today that was dominated by the sprinters. So let's get into stage one, which was an eight-kilometer Time trial and that was won by the bookies' favorite Rohan Dennis with a time of nine minutes and thirty nine seconds. Coming in second on that was Mihal Kwiatkowski of Team Sky, followed up by th- in third with Victor campanarts of Lotto Sudal, who was just seven seconds back. Mihal Kwiatkowski was six seconds back, and so there wasn't uh, you know you know Rohan Dennis was the bookies' favorite. He was, everyone had, picked him to win. I guess Mihail Kwiatkowski's second place was a little bit of a surprise, but not really. He is a, a really good time trialist, and I guess everybody in Team Sky is a pretty uh, dang good time trialist. And so there wasn't anything too earth-shattering going on there as a lot of the GC guys at least stayed in decent position and didn't give up too much time. And the biggest one would be uh, Richie Port, who finished in 97th. With 51 seconds back, and he said before the stage he had some stomach problems. And if you listen to the Vualta preview show, you know, I I mentioned Port as being a favorite and that he really just hasn't been able to put together a grand tour, kind of something always comes up. And after stage one, he is 51 seconds back in time trial, 94th place. Doesn't look too good, and we'll get into what happens stage two and three for Port. Also not good, but, uh, yeah, had stomach issues before the time trial and again it's just another case another thing that comes up for port not being able to put together this full grand tour from the american side though it was cool to see in 15th place Brent Bookwalter of BMC Racing he uh, was 23 seconds back and so that was cool to see at least an american uh you know he was in the top 10 for a while he was wearing the stars and stripes so as he is the uh, american time trial champion. So when it came to GC on stage one, Balcom Oliver of Trek Segafredo with 27 seconds back, he was kind of that first GC guy in the mix besides Mihail Kuyukovsky in second place. And then from there, um, kind of the GC guys were anywhere from 20th to 50th place with Simon Yates being in 30. He was 29 seconds back. Nairo Cantana in 34th. He was 30 seconds back. You have Rafael Micah, Borah Hansgrohe. He was 34 seconds back. And Miguel Lopez of Astana, he was 35th place. And then guys like Daniel Martin, Peter Sagan, and Fabio Aru all going 38 seconds back. Which, 38 seconds back for Peter Sagan in a time trial. That That was pretty good. I would definitely say that's a win for him. And then some other notable favorites. You have Thibaut Pino. 40 seconds back in 63rd place. Vincenzo Nibali, 64th at 40 seconds back. Again, two. And then kind of last one to round it out is Rigoberto Uran in 80th place at 45 seconds back. And David De La Cruz of Team Sky, 81st place. And actually, Elia Viviani, you know, a sprinter, was 78th place. So above two guys who are GC contenders. So stage one. I thought it was a pretty interesting watch. It was a very short time trial, beautiful area of Spain. And I thought it was a great watch. So now, moving on to stage two. Stage two was supposed to be a flat stage, or at least flat, that's what the Volta website said it was going to be. But this uh, saw some GC guys absolutely destroy their chances of GC. And that would be Britchie Porte. <laughs> We mentioned on the stage one, he had some stomach issues. Well, he lost 13 minutes, 13 minutes in stage two. So for somebody who was, I mean, people predicted that he would be a GC favorite, he lost 13 minutes in stage two. And Port, after the stage, I don't know if he was trying to save face or exactly what he he was saying in this. I I didn't see anything uh, that he said this before the race, but he said he wasn't going out for GC. He wasn't in form. For the Volta, he wasn't informed that he was for the Tour, and so he dropped 13 minutes on Stage 2, along with Rohan Dennis dropping 13 minutes. Now, he was kind of a dark horse for that GC contention, as he's has his eyes set, I believe, on the two-time trials this year, already winning one of them and wearing red on Stage 2. So after Stage 2, Mikhail Kwiatkowski got into red after him and Alejandro Valverde duped it out to for the stage win, and Alejandro Valverde ended up getting the win there. But Miel Kwiatkowski came away with red for the next day, opening up a 14-second lead after stage two. And it was amazing to see Valverde get that stage win as Valverde is 38 years old, but still incredible. I mean, he's acting like he's in the prime of his career, and, and that's kind of been known for alejandro valverde that age is really no no number no matter to him at all he is uh he's just lighting it up whatever race he's in i I know in the the tour earlier he animated a couple of those stage races or a couple of those stages and yeah he's an incredible racer to watch definitely uh definitely exciting to watch throughout uh well throughout the whole vault he'd be very exciting to watch and it was interesting in an interview after he won that Stage, he was kind of saying how he's a free agent or a wild card in the race. He's definitely racing for Nairo, but he has he has no pressure because the focus is on Quintana for that GC win, and he's out there to light up the race, animate it, help Nairo whenever possible, but also go for stage wins such as uh, stage two. So now moving over to stage three, this was one for the sprinters, but still a lot of a uh, lot of climbing in there. You know, this uh, even these supposedly flat stages or sprinting stages there's still a good amount of climbing to be done and uh it it still was the sprinters that came out on top on like stage two where you had Valverde and Mihal Kwiatkowski battling out for the win you know they are definitely not not sprinters but they aren't necessarily pure climbers either and so Elia Viviani takes the stage win on stage three which is incredible because that is his 16th win of the year. And Quick-Step Floors just keeps dominating in the pro tour, racking up stage wins just left and right. And Sagan was in second. And Sagan has also said that he is definitely not up to form like he was for the tour. And he had that late crash in the tour, which I think he is still coming back from. And in a couple of interviews, he just keeps mentioning the fact that he's not fully up to form, not fully you know feeling the best body wise he still looks good and and even when he's not to form he's still taken second in in a grand tour stage so incredible for him but looking at the times now after stage 3 so Mihal Kwiatkowski is in red of course he's in first place he still got that 14 second lead over Alejandro Valverde and then you have some uh, notable names coming up in the top 10 with Nairo Quintana, he's at ninth. He is 33 seconds down, so not too bad. And he's basically tied there with Balcom Oliver, Stephen and Ladoan Yumbo, and then Simon Yates, who I still believe has one of the better chances of winning the Volta this year. He's in 12th place right now, 37 seconds back. Rafael Mica, Borahansgro, he is 42 seconds back in 14th place. Another big name of Thibaut Pino, the Frenchman from FDJ, is in sixteenth place, 43 seconds back. Fabio Ru of UAE Team Emirates, he's in 18th place, 47 seconds back. And another guy who I'd like to see finish well, Rigoberto Uran of VF Education first drap pack powered by Cannondale, 48 seconds back, in nineteenth place. And I believe I didn't I only printed out you know, the top 100, and Richie Port is not even in the top 100, but he is only five minutes back, so we did gain some time back this stage, which at least that's what I saw, but I don't know how you gain eight minutes on a flat stage, so I would say Port is definitely out for this race. He has definitely mentioned it on interviews, everything like that, so now tomorrow, which is Tuesday, this is Stage four will be kind of the first mountain test. It's 161 kilometer leaving Malaga and climbing into the Granadas. It's a summit finish, and that summit finish has a average gradient of 5.4%. So it's, it's no like killer, but that's still a lot of climbing, especially because uh, 45 kilometers into the race, they have a uh, category one climb and then ending on a summit finish. But that uh, average gradient of 5.4% also hits up to 12%. And in an article I was reading from Velon News... Velo news. they were talking about that this summit finish is basically a paved over goat path, is how one person described it. So it should make for interesting racing, and Mihail Kwiatkowski said this is definitely the first test of his climbing ability and how he can hold up with guys like Quintana and some of those other pure climbers, because I think this is definitely a chance for Quintana to gain back some time and some of those pure climbers to really kind of make their mark and put their stamp on the race. And I think we'll see some fractures in the Peloton tomorrow with all of this climbing. We'll see how the sprinters fare, but you know, just over and over all these interviews and other podcasts that are going on about the Volta just talk about how hilly and hard of a race this is. And uh, yeah, it's been incredibly hilly to watch. And a lot of the sprinters are basically saying like, to, like today there really wasn't any true sprint lead out trains and there was a couple factors for that. One is the heat. People just kept talking about how hot it is there and how much of a toll that takes on you. You know, one rider describing it as basically a sauna that they were racing in. But these true sprint lead out trains, like you see in the Tour de France, aren't happening because of the hilly stages, the heat, and how that just takes a toll on your team and how you're not able to have all of those people up there with you in order to help you on those final, you know, those final meters. And so Sagan Viviani, basically for them, it's how do they feel coming out of those hills? Do they have it in the legs to then give it at the end? So definitely a hilly race. And if you get a chance, definitely go check out the Cycling Podcast. That is a great podcast. And they do something called Kilometer Zero. And in this Kilometer Zero, it's like a special podcast that they put on with their other regular podcasts they're doing recaps of each stage but kilometer zero talked about kind of the history of the volta and it coming up and at one point the volta i think like in the 80s it really wasn't a hilly climb or a hilly tour and then they started putting in all of these mountain climbs and stuff like that to make it tougher to stand up with the giro and the tour but now it's i mean it's full of climbs and full of these crazy gradients and probably more climbing than than the tour, or at least harder climbs in the tour in the Giro, so it's been, I guess it's had a great evolution of getting into this amazing climbing tour. And so what are our, what are our couple hot topics coming out of the first couple stages in the Vualta? Well, one is definitely with Mihail Kwiatkowski of Team Sky in red. I mean, before the tour, they had Mihail Kwiatkowski and David De La Cruz as their two GC guys, but without gary and thomas or without Froome, you think a little bit that team sky is just thrown in the towel they're not planning to win this and I, I you know i'm not in their team bus so i don't know if they really do have these gc hopes but they still have a rider in red and they're not going to give up that jersey easily so without even the, the two best riders in the world they still have a shot at winning this Grand Tour. And to see one team win all three Grand Tours with three different riders, this has never been done in history. That would be absolutely mind-blowing. And so the fan cyclist in me wants Michael Kwiatkowski to win. Also, he's just a really fun guy to follow on social media. Seems like a really chill dude. Likes to likes to party it up when he's done riding in a, you know, not maybe a Sagan party up way, just like a chill back party kind of way. But he also gives recaps after every stage on his Instagram page. So if someone, uh, a good rider to follow is Michael Kwiatkowski. But just seems like a fun guy. He's the Polish road champion. Just won the Tour of Poland as well. And he is in red, not going to give it up easy in all of his interviews. He's talked about how, you know, even though uh, they may, they, they still have yet to, I, I guess he still has yet to decide if he's full outgoing for GC, he'll he'll probably make that decision more after tomorrow but he has the red jersey he's not going to give it up easy so that would be amazing to see him win but also just team sky winning three grand tours in one year with three different people absolutely mind-blowing so some other things are port losing time i mean richie port of team bmc he just does not seem to be able to put together a grand tour and kind of always has i guess some kind of problem now crashing it's hard to say if crashing is some kind of problem or do they actually get caught up in something, but it is amazing how some people can just avoid avoid crashes. You know, Chris Froome, for the most part, in his Grand Tour wins, does avoid crashes now in the Giro and the Tour this year. He did have crashes, but they were light crashes. And But some people just are able to avoid crashes. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily know how that, how that works. Is it luck? Are they following the right line? Is it their bike handling skills? What is it? But port with stomach issues beforehand on stage one and then stage two you know losing 13 minutes just seems like his grand tour has come to an end very quickly now that is from my perspective thinking that he would be going for g for gc but now port says that you know he he doesn't have aspirations to go for gc so i guess we'll see more and more maybe he'll go for a stage one or two or maybe he's just prepping for worlds trying to get back on form for that as a lot of guys are probably are using the volta as preparation for worlds you know especially uh vincenzo nibli a bahrain merida he says he's not going for gc he can still animate the race at any time because he is vincenzo nibli he's won all three grand tours but he is using this more for form for the worlds as that definitely suits him this year and alejandro valverde there's been some speculation on how deep will he go if he is going to take a crack at worlds and you know he's in second place right now he says he's working for Quintana which I believe he is doing and just because he is in second place right now does not mean that he won't give it up for Quintana if Quintana is in that spot they have a good backup card backup card to play in Valverde if something happens to Quintana, but he says he's he's a wild card in this race. He says he's a loose cannon kind of in a way, but will he go too deep that he can't perform as well in Worlds? Will he kind of balance that, go for a couple stage wins early, and then maybe take it back a notch in the second and third weeks of the Tour? We'll see, but definitely kind of across the board, there's definitely some riders who are using this in preparation for this year's Worlds. So that is it for the Volta. We'll do a quick transition over into transfer news. Not much coming out for this podcast. The the, the biggest news for in transfer news is Team Astana signs the Izagiri brothers from Bahrain Merida, but they also have their eyes on Mikel Landa, who Mikel Landa is currently riding the Volta with Movistar. No, he's not in the Volta. He There was speculation on uh, whether or not he was going to start. He ended up not starting because of an injury. But Astana is looking to sign Mikel Landa, which would make sense in a way for Mikel Landa because right now he is with Alejandro Valverde and Nairo Quintana, which going into the tour, that was a big talk, whether or not that was smart to go in with a three-pronged attack. You know, not a ton of teams have ever gone in with a three-pronged attack. Usually it's one guy for sure. Every once in a while you get two people. That you have as kind of co leaders, but Movistar went in with three. Didn't necessarily work out for anybody as nobody did that great in the GC standings this year. Quintana did pick up a stage win. Valverde did well, but Landed really didn't seem to do a whole lot. So if he's looking to be kind of a sole leader, Astana could be a good fit for him. No news yet, but uh, Bahrain Merida, or Astana does sign Izagiri Brothers from Bahrain Merida and looking for Mikel Landa of Movistar. So some sad news in the world of cycling is yet another team is folding. Team Aqua Blue is folding at the end of this season. Now, if you they are the Irish team, and you know, they're big riders, Adam Blythe, and it's just sad to see another team go down. They've been in existence for two years, but basically they said that they couldn't get enough, races to give them invites in order to, you know, make money, get stage wins, show off their their sponsor, but they definitely disrupted to a certain extent the uh the cycling world with their approach to be a self-funded self-funded cycling team and also the highly controversial bike that they were using this year which was the 3T one-by bike which they've had some success with it, but for the most part we haven't seen a lot of I mean they have not been in a grand tour this year, they were in the Volta last year. But it's sad to see another team go, and especially them, because they had a little bit different approach to how to fund a cycling team and the fact that they were Ireland's first pro cycling team. They set a lot of firsts for Irish cycling, and I love that they were controversial with their, one, their one-by bike. And they didn't just go controversial with the one-by. They had the disc brakes on there and all. So at the beginning of the season, and that was kind of all the talk for everybody, was that Team Aqua Blue is going to be using this. 3T1 by Disc Brake Bike. So, yes, another team folding this year. So, even though that is sad news, we have some happy news coming up in tech. So, not a whole lot going on in tech this this podcast. Two bikes that we're going to go over that uh, that dropped recently. And so moving away from the road of the Vualta onto the ever popular growing segment category of gravel bikes, Cannondale comes out with yet another gravel bike. And this is called the Cannondale Topstone, the Cannondale Topstone. It is an alloy framed bike with a carbon fork and it takes geometry from cannondale's super x cyclocross bike and that geometry is called out front geometry which i've never ridden that before but this is what i am told via the world wide web so the out front geometry is has a 55 millimeter fork offset slack head tube angle of 71 degrees and so all that together means that it will give you good off-road stability, giving the bike a lot of versatility on a lot of surfaces. It clears 42 millimeter tires and can fit 650Bs, so that is definitely a growing trend of being able to fit wide tires, but also 650B tires where you can do some pseudo mountain biking if you want. But, uh, yeah, throwing 42s on there, you can, you can get a lot done with 42s. And those are WTB tubeless-ready tires as well. So if you want to run even lower tire pressure, you can with tubeless. And another, another trend on gravel bikes, big tires that are tubeless-ready, 650 that are tubeless-ready. And so this bike is made for adventuring, has bag mounts on the top tube has place for three water bottle cages as well so you can stay hydrated on your long ride and the top spec of the bike comes with SRAM Apex 1 and a dropper seat post with 55 millimeters travel now this is something I'm I am super interested in being a, a bike mechanic and just loving the bike world and what's going on is is dropper seat post because more and more gravel bikes are starting to don this dropper seat post. And there's a lot of talk on whether it's necessary for gravel. If it's not necessary for gravel, why do you need a dropper seat post? You know, so in in mountain biking, a dropper seat post helps give you better stability when you are going downhill because you can have, you know, kind of that lower center of gravity. But do you really need it on a gravel bike? Now, I'm not here to talk today I guess about whether or not you need a dropper seat post, it is just an interesting trend to watch. The The best thing I've heard, though, about a dropper seat post is George Hincapie was talking about it on Lance Armstrong's podcast because Lance Armstrong hates the arrow tuck position where guys get down on that top tube and try to get as arrow as possible. And George Hincapie came up with, well, what if they introduced a dropper seat post on a road bike so that they could get in that aero tuck but still be seated. And I thought that idea was actually brilliant because I believe that aero tuck position as well is dangerous. It, you know, I see people who aren't pros doing it, and even the pros doing it, I think it's kind of stupid. You know, in the Tour de France, there was a, uh, who, who crashed after coming out of an aero tuck? Uh, quick step rider, he went over a wall can't remember his name, but uh, he was coming down a descent, was in an aero tuck, got uh, coming in too hot around a corner, and then flipped over a wall. His knee swelled up like a balloon, but, uh, yeah, it just showed that it was dangerous. So George Hinkap, came up with the idea of having the dropper seat post on a road bike so you could get in that aero tuck, but still say somewhat safe. I thought that was a good idea. But, yes, this one does come with a dropper seat post, 55 millimeters of travel, on that dropper seat post so moving away from gravel into a super fast stiff amazing-looking felt supreme 1.1 this is a woman specific aero bike and this bike just looks fast it looks it's got this nice black matte black finish on it you know it has the seat stays that are dropped down on that seat post C post tube and it is a it's a beautifully looking bike it looks super fast and it's a women's specific aero bike so I think that is really cool as well and uh, it might be a trend I guess a lot of bike brands right now are going away from that women's specific and just doing uh, all around any gender bike there's no verdict yet on whether or not one or the other is better but felt has definitely been in the women's game for a long time sponsoring one of the first women uh women tour sorry pro women's team back in uh mid late 70s somewhere around there so fuji is coming out with the supreme 1.1 1. 1. now i'm taking a lot of this info from velo news who did a full deep dive into it so head over to velo news if you want to get the full description of it but just kind of the down and dirty notes on it is velo news gave it a 90.6 out of 100 raise ways 16.22 pounds in the 50 centimeter model and comes in at a nice low price of $7,000. So what makes it worth $7,000? Well, this features Fuji's C15 carbon while other Fuji bikes use the C10 carbon. Now what is the difference between the C15 and the C10? Well, the C15 carbon will shave off 150 grams. Now, it doesn't seem like a lot, but that is 150 grams off of a frame, which is, that's a pretty good amount. I would say that's at least worth it to uh, bump up that price tag. And that $7,000 comes with SRAM ETAP 5236 up front, 1128 in the back, pretty standard. But the short chainstays, tight wheelbase, and the race-orientated head angle give it a nice snappy, Feel and as VeloNews described it, gives it a lot of peppiness. So those are the two bikes that uh, we're bringing out today because they seem like the two newest bikes in tech. Kind of slow right now in tech, I would say. Not a ton of stuff going on. Uh, Green Thomas is definitely, it's not necessarily tech news, but he is uh, creating a lot of waves in the should-you-wear-a-helmet market because he said that you should wear a helmet at all times, and it's creating a lot of news buzz, which is kind of stupid because... A pro rider who has to wear a helmet all the time in races told people that they should wear a helmet, which it, you know, makes sense to wear a helmet, so we'll see if that uh, creates any waves in the tech market, and there's also a gravel helmet, specific gravel helmet out on the market now. Don't really know if it does anything for you, but yes, there is a specific gravel helmet now to go with all of your gravel adventures, and... Before you go out on those gravel adventures what do you need to do well you need to have a pre-ride checklist so for maintenance today we are talking about pre-ride checks pre-ride checks that i do every time before i go out riding and uh okay i'll admit i don't do it every single time but basically if you took a poll 95 percent of the time i do all of these checks at least i do half of these every time i go go out riding but what should you be checking for Every time you go out ride, now I'm talking about a road bike today and what I do when I go out for a road bike ride. It might be different if I am going out commuting on the fixed gear. If I am going out for a cyclocross ride, some of it's going to be different. But basically, this is good all across the board. So I'm riding road bike, BH, ultralight. It's got... Rim brakes on it, no disc brakes, so that makes it a little bit different as well. Quick release skewers, of course, with the rim brake version. So, what are my pre ride checks? Two biggest things pumping up your tires and putting lube all over that chain. Just kidding, we're not putting it all over a chain, just on certain parts. But air pressure super, super, super important, super important. Can't stress it enough. Earlier podcast talked all about air pressure and all the nerdy geekiness that you can get into but that is definitely like the first thing I do when I'm getting when I get out into the garage and now I'm looking at my bike is I do air pressure. And let me back up real quick for all these pre-ride checks, I have my bike up in a stand, which is really nice to work on if you want to invest in a tool, I would highly highly recommend investing in a bike stand before a lot of other tools you can basically if you have a multi-tool and a bike stand you can do a lot of things so a bike stand there's a ton of diy options out there to do it cheap actually i have a diy option for what i use in my garage and it's super cheap but definitely recommend in buying a bike stand and i would recommend just buying a bike stand don't do a diy option unless you you know really want to but You really don't save a ton of money doing the DIY option, so get a bike stand. So, tire pressure. Now, what do you need to take into consideration with your tire pressure? Well, what type of day is it? Is it raining? Is it dry? Is it in the morning where it could be a little bit slick? Did it just rain so the road is a little bit slick? Definitely take that into consideration with your tire pressure because you want to run slightly less tire pressure if it is wet, if you're going to go do some kind of gravel, or... If it's a really bumpy, cracked road, because that lower tire pressure will give you better grip on those types of road, it will also soften that ride up a little bit. But let's say it's just a nice, pristine day out. I'm riding 25 millimeter Grand Prix 4000s, so I like to run right about 95 psi, usually in the front, 100 in the back. Sometimes I change that around, but tire pressure, I pump up my tires before I ride every single time, no matter what, no matter what tire pressure. So. Check tire pressure. This will also give you an opportunity to see if you have a slow leak. If you just rode yesterday and your tire is you usually pumped up to 100 and it's 50, today you know that you probably have a slow leak going on in your tire, so therefore you can get that fixed before you go out on your ride because it is never any fun to work on your bike while you are out on a ride. Next, what do I do? Chain lube. I put lube on my chain almost every single time that I ride the only times that I don't is if like I went out for a 15-20 mile ride the day before I really don't need to put lube on especially if it was a dry day out but I use muck off ceramic dry lube on my road bike and I clean my chain every single time I go out and ride apply new lube on there and then that gives me a good time to look at all my drivetrain components every time I do that and so if you do that over You know, every time you ride, you're definitely going to notice the little things that happen in your chain, in your cassette, in your shifting. You know, I I run through my gears after I put the lube on there. One, to just kind of let that lube all sink and settle into that chain, but also double checking that all my gears are working. Now, would I recommend that you check your gears before you ride every single time? No, I just do it, got in the habit of it. And uh, it's nice to make a quarter turn on a barrel adjuster so that every time I go out riding, it's crisp, clean shifting. So chain lube. Yes. And I would also recommend throwing in a deep clean of that chain about once a week. So either get some degreaser, recommend muck off bio degreaser, real nice, throw that on chain quick, scrub that chain down, reapply it with lube. Next, check those quick releases, especially if you're transporting your bike In a car please check those quick releases make sure that front one is closed tight make sure that back one is closed tight and make sure it's actually closed I do see a lot of bikes that come in uh, that I work on that people tighten the quick release and didn't actually close it they left it open and just tighten it and not that it's like severely bad it's just not how it's intended to work so please close that skewer make sure it is tight and at that same time Check to make sure if you've taken that front wheel out that your brake caliper, that that little lever is closed as well, the lever that opens and closes your brakes because I also see that a lot where either they're like, hey, my brakes don't feel right or they they don't know it at all and it's a great time to educate them because that is a huge safety thing but also it's a feel thing. you know If you're just like, why the heck aren't my brakes working? Well, you may have left that lever open and it was just because you forgot to close it or... When you were taking your wheel in and out, again, you forgot to, enclose, forgot to close it. So that's definitely something I check because I do transport my bike in and out of my car. I also work on my bike, so I'll take my front wheel out to clean it, something like that. And so that's just another little check. Make sure every time that that little lever is closed. And then also while you're on that little lever, you might as well spin that wheel and make sure that Your wheel is not rubbing on that brake in any way. You know, if you're taking that wheel in and out, sometimes you can get it not right in there, and then it's going to be tilted slightly and rubbing on one of your brakes, which is no fun to do while you're out riding. That sucks, slows you down, and you won't get that KOM. So make sure that your wheel is in there straight. Also, when it spins, you might as well check the trueness of it. Knock out uh, two birds with one stone. And then kind of the last... Two, two last checks. I guess when you're pumping up your tires, I always kind of just look uh, look around at my tire. One, check, check the longevity of it. Make sure it's not wearing out. But also, is there any little pieces of glass, any pieces of rock that are sticking through that could make their way through there? And then the last one that I do is swing my leg over the bike and just kind of bounce my bike on the ground. So I hold the handlebars as my leg is swung over the top tube. I am standing over the bike. I just kind of lift it up, let it down gently, make sure there's no weird rattling. And then I go off on my ride. Actually bouncing your bike just nice and gently is a great way to figure out if there's anything a little loose in there, if there's anything rattling in there. It uh, sounds you know super simple, but actually is a great great test to see if anything else weird is going on. And so like I said, I do that all of that stuff about 95% of the time I go out and ride. And having a pre-ride checklist, I have a pre-ride checklist for other things as well. But the maintenance thing is a huge one because it sucks to go out on a ride and find out five miles down the road that you didn't pump up your tires or you got a brake rubbing or something. Something is wrong with your bike. So if you do that pre-ride checklist, one, is definitely going to save the longevity of your bike because you are going through all these maintenance things before you go out riding every time, and you'll notice little little subtle things that go wrong if you're checking it every single day. So, again, it's great from a longevity of your bike perspective, but also just keeping your bike as efficient as possible and uh, getting all those K KOMs because that's why we bike, to make fun of our friends on Strava and show that we're better than them. So, no, totally kidding, totally kidding. That is not why we bike. We just bike for the cafe stops, the coffee coffee more coffee and then with pastries that's why we bike and while we're biking it's a big 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 hot topic talking about headphones while cycling do you do it do you not do it you think it should be banned you think all cyclists who have headphones in the ears should go to jail spend uh, you know overnight in prison have to post bond something like that or do you ride it every time and don't care so I'll tell you what I do first and then get into kind of the pros and cons of both. I do ride with music. I have one of these LG, they almost look like a necklace. They go around your neck and it has two headphones that come out of it. It's a Bluetooth headphone that you can take calls on and stuff like that. I ride with one of these those on and I put one earbud in my right ear and I keep that music level lower so maybe about half the volume something like that but just my right ear i always keep my left ear open and when i'm on a bike path i'm usually on that right side always have that left ear open to to listen and then when i'm out on the road of course i'm usually on that right shoulder so cars are passing on the left side so i can always hear them at least with one ear and so i'm not justifying that that is the right way to do it that is what i do i feel safe doing that i feel like i am giving other people the chance to say something to me to alert me of something and i i'm not closing off the rest of the world but i love music while i'm biking my biking dramatically changes when i have music in and when i don't have music also it just it gives me something to think about on those long rides you know i don't want to sit with my own thoughts for five hours on a bike that is no fun and and you know, when I'm going out on those training rides where I need a little bit extra for those for those sprints or those, you know, above threshold efforts, music definitely helps with that. So, I I disagree that you should put both headphones in your ears and go out riding. I think that's unsafe, especially if you're riding with high volume. Now, some people think that is totally safe and that is, you know, ultimately it's up to you of what you're going to do. I I think you should at least have some recognition of what's going on around you especially with cars passing and the more and more I commute I realize how how you know poor of drivers there can be out there and how poor of people there can be out on the bike path as well so if you at least if you have both in you know bring that bring that volume level down so you can hear your surroundings And, uh, what, what really irks me out on the bike path though, usually it's not bikers that I encounter doing this, but joggers who have both headphones in and I'm trying to yell to them on your left, on your left, on your left while I'm coming up on the bike path. And every once in a while they're, they're in the middle of it because it's early in the morning or later at night, nobody else is out on the, on the path. And I'm scared to, uh, to pass them because I don't want to hit them. You know, if, If I hit them I'm hitting the deck and they're hitting the deck you know that turns out poorly for everybody and I don't want to scare them because a lot of times you come up on runners who have both headphones in and you see them jerk to the right as you're coming up on their left and you feel bad but ultimately it's their fault because they have both headphones in and so I you know I take that example and then move that over to cycling you know if you have both headphones in as a cyclist who's behind you that's trying to get past you or warn you of something coming up so that I think it's a huge safety issue to ride with both headphones and especially if you're blaring that volume now I hypocritically say that in a way because I do ride with headphones in but I leave one out and for me I've been able to hear almost everything and when I get to really busy or noisy parts I take both out and make sure I'm fully aware of what is going on around me. I'm fortunate enough to ride on a lot of back roads and quiet bike paths, and that's where I, th- I feel like it's safe to have one one earbud in. But I totally understand it because riding without music sucks. And also, you, you know, with my business that I'm in, I can get a call from somebody kind of any time of the day, weekend, doesn't matter. So I always want to be available to take a call too, which with these headphones I could take a call while I'm while i'm biking which is super super convenient now i could go over on the side of the road and take the call you know i don't uh i can take all my actions from my my headphones i never actually have to take my phone out and be distracted by that so i can just press a button on my headphones and it, it starts or ends the call which is really nice but totally understand why you would uh not want not want to ride without headphones because it is boring. You don't I, for me. I don't get as good of training, and so I totally understand that argument too. But I, uh, you know, love to hear what you guys have to say about that. Whether you're hitting me up on Twitter, leaving comments wherever this is, go find the blog. You know, go find me somewhere. Instagram, Twitter. Let me know what you guys think about this and what you do in your training with headphones. So. With that, that brings episode six to a close. We went through the Vualta, hit on a couple new bikes and tech, went over your pre-ride checklist, and did it all up with whether or not you should wear headphones out on your bike while you are training, going out for a casual ride, commuting, whatever it is, should you be wearing headphones while cycling. So thank you for listening to the Cycling With pop cycling with watts podcast this is episode number six so we are just getting started in this podcast world so definitely a lot more stuff to come down the road hopefully some good interviews with some amazing bike people i live in, uh, in minneapolis minnesota and there's a great bike culture here and a lot of big bike brands here so i'm hoping to get some interviews with some influential cycling people here but if you want to get more cycling with watts go find me on instagram at cycling with watts on Twitter where I try to update a bunch of pro cycling stuff that is going on, and that is at cycling with Watts, but with is spelled WTH, so that is cycling WTH Watts. And I couldn't get the I in there because otherwise that handle would be too long. Also, check out the website, cycling with Watts.com. I think that is all the places you can find me unless you show up at my house which if you can find my house then i will invite you in so that is a uh, can be a challenge you can meet my cat Merckx, named after the great eddie Merckx. this fall we are getting another little kitten so we'll have two that one will be named through so you can come watch the greatest the two of the greatest of all time duke it out at my house where else can you watch that you can't you can't so thank you again for tuning in and we will be back for episode seven in the next couple of days, we'll give you another recap on the Vualta, which is super exciting. So if you uh, if you haven't been watching, it, go check it out. NBC Sports has coverage of it uh, for the next two weeks. So have a great, uh, great rest of your cycling adventures, whatever that holds today. Keep those elbows tucked in, head down, and pedal like hell. This is Cycling with Podcast. Let's get that sting music to close us out.